Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. In order to keep the podcast ad-free, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Mandela. We're sitting in the Karoo, which is a plateau in southern Africa. It's a high desert, and I'm sitting here with Michael Kroon. He is a born and bred Karoo person. He has been farming sheep for 40 years. He also farms goats, cattle, and hunts for kudu, springbok, and blessbok. He plants trees on behalf of his son, and he's planted almost a thousand trees here in the Karoo. Well, first, Michael, I just want to say thank you so much for the beautiful day that we had today. Thank you for joining me on the trail less traveled. Let's just first talk about what happened today. What did we do? Where are we and what did we do? Why was it special today? Yes, well, it was very special for me because Sam, Mandy's father, was a good friend of mine at Elsenburg and he came down and he told me he was coming to visit me and he said he's going to bring his daughter. I got excited because she shared the same passion as me as a hunter, and we hunt ethically, and we hunt for food and for nourishment for ourselves and for other people. She told me about her hunting in America, being out with her dad. Her dad is also a keen hunter. So I suggested to them, let's go out, and we're going to try and shoot the springbok. Anyway, she had a shot. And all of a sudden we heard the shot go off and I could clearly hear that it was good. And it was really exciting to see the buck there. And at that stage I only heard that this was Manny's first buck and I could see she was very emotional, very touched by it and had a huge amount of respect for the animal. We walked to the springbuck and Mandy put her hand onto the springbuck I'm not sure what she said. She kept quiet there for quite a while. She had a spiritual moment with the springbok, and then she started doing the field dressing, which was done very professionally. Got the entrails out, and uh, before the time I warned her, should she shoot the springbok? The tradition in the Karoo is that you get bathed in the blood of the springbok all over your face, so when she'd finished taking out the entrails, I put my hand into the springbok and got a nice handful of blood and I rubbed the flesh thoroughly with the blood and she sat there, she didn't moan or get agitated, she was quite calm. And after that, the other tradition is that she'd have a piece of the liver, raw liver, and she really respectfully did it and chewed it slowly and swallowed it with no problem. And after that, Mandy then, then picked up the springbuck and put it on her shoulders and carried it to the, 
a vehicle and she put it on the back of the bucky. And we were all so excited. Mandy's dad, Sam, was so excited to see her witness her first buck. And if people ask her about this buck, she's got a wonderful story to tell. I'm also very privileged as a farmer to witness this wonderful day and a really special day. I'm so grateful that I was involved in this day. So thank you to Sam and Mandy for making this day for me special as well. We're sitting in the Karoo in Southern Africa. We're in the Eastern Cape on top of a desert plateau. And I'm here with my father's friend from when they were at school in Ilsenburg, studying farming. Michael is a born and bred Karoo person. He has been a sheep farmer for 40 years. He also works with goats, cattle, and hunts for himself and also hunts with people who come visit for Kudu, Springbok, and Blesbok. He also plants trees all over the Karoo on behalf of his son. Michael, where did you grow up and how was adventure part of your childhood? Yes, I was born in Grafenet and at that stage my dad was farming in New Bethesda. My grandfather never farmed. He opened up butcher shops and I grew up on a Karoo farm. We were five siblings, first my eldest sister and then me and then my brother Clinton. The other two came much later. But we had a wonderful experience on a farm which was called The Lands, which is a bit different to where I'm now today. But basically the same principles apply. But I had a wonderful, happy childhood. We used to mingle with our staff's children. We used to make all kinds of our own games. We used to make wire cars. In those days there weren't TV or cell phones. So we used to create our own little games, and one of them was to create our own little wire cars, and we used to have mud fights, and we used to also smoke quietly without our parents knowing in the dams and in the sluts. We were keen horsemen, we used to ride a lot of horse, and we used to help my dad with all the chores on the farm, whether it was trenching, dipping, shearing, or collecting sheep and we always used to be involved in the shearing sheds and, and in the crawls with, 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 with helping my dad with his work. And so we, we were at an early age, we were exposed to, to life on the farm. And later on, my dad used to teach us more about the felt types and how important it is to look after the felt because that's a, a natural acid. It's, it's the cheapest form of grazing for our animals, a lot cheaper than having to buy feed for them. And to keep them healthy and well, and then they'll produce better. If they're healthy, they'll produce wonderful, strong lambs. They'll produce good wool. So we had a good foundation as kids. And uh, so then we went off, went to school, and we did our studies there, and we all matriculated at Union High in Grafenet, and after that, we had to go to the army. After the army, I decided to go to Elsenburg Agricultural College to further my knowledge about farming, because all I wanted to do was farm. It was just in me to farm, and I enjoyed the quiet environment and enjoyed nature. So when I completed Elsenburg, I first started off in a Karoo farm down in the Lanesburg area, which is an extremely low rainfall area. Also a succulent Karoo. 
and no, no, very, very little grass there, which I just farmed with merinos. And it was a very difficult farm, very mountainous. And because of vermin, I couldn't really breed there. So then my dad bought a farm in Willowmore, and I moved to Willowmore Karoo Farm. But before that, I was also fortunate to meet a lady that also grew up in the Karoo. And my father-in-law was a huge asset to me. He taught me a lot about felt management, grazing, rotational grazing, and the importance of looking well after your animals. I was very fortunate because I had a father that was a farmer and a father-in-law, which was also a very good, successful farmer in the Karoo. So I started farming in 1983, first in Lanesburg, then I moved to Rietbron and then to Willamore. We are presently reside. I've been here for about 30 years. Michael, for someone listening who doesn't know anything about Southern Africa, let alone the Karoo, can you share with us what you know about the Karoo? Well, the Karoo, before the white people came to Southern Africa, it was just one vast landscape, untouched. The animals roamed wild. There were huge troops of springbuck which we should track through the Karoo. They weren't constricted to any area. The Karoo means dry place. And it's a coin name. And the whole of the Karoo, before the white man came, the bushman or the koi made a living in the Karoo. The Karoo is sort of inland from the coastland. It's divided into quite a few ecosystems. We have a succulent Karoo. We have the Nama Karoo. That's the dwarf Karoo bushes. And then we have the grasslands, the higher area. There's certain areas where the rainfall is higher. So we have low rainfall areas and slightly higher rainfall areas. And as the white man moved in, they started developing the Karoo. Before my time, I'm not sure how the farms were divided up, but farms were demarcated and land was then started to fence, fence off because it was proved to be good natural grazing for livestock and for wildlife. And even some certain areas in this dry area, cattle also do very well. So this Karoo, which was an open, wide space, the white man started developing it by drilling boreholes for water, building earth dams for water. Where there was enough water, they would build, make lands, and they'd build homesteads and the infrastructure. And Karoo became not extremely profitable place, but it became more way of life and you could make a living if you managed it properly. But the, the, the secret of the Karoo is you must farm with animals that are well adapted to this area. There are certain types of sheep, there are certain type of goats, and a certain type of cattle that adapt very well. But to go more into the grazing patterns, we, it's been, we've discovered that uh, rotation grazing whereby you've got a system of camps where you can rotate your sheep quite quickly, give your felt enough chance to recuperate after grazing, 
and you allow the rainfall to improve your felt before you come back to that portion of felt. People have managed to make a living here for, for quite a long time. And the crew people are quite a bit different to the city people. Um, we speak a language of our own type of English and we speak our own type of Afrikaans. We try and look after our natural assets as best as we can and we try and preserve it so that the next generation can also have a chance to carry on. And it's not just about yourself, it's about what the opportunity that has been given to us. So we basically just land users that, that have the responsibility to look after the land and to look after animals so that our children and children can continue in this part of the world that we love so much. Michael, we're sitting here in your home, and this is a historic house, which many are in, in Southern Africa. My family's been in Spellendam since 1682. But I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about this room that we're in right now and uh, about your farm right now and what you do on the farm these days. What I do on this farm, as I said, I farm with sheep, cattle, and goats. And we do a bit of hunting. That's what I do on this farm as, as an income, as to survive and to be able to look after my family. So this farm that I'm on is 6,000 hectares and we can run about 1,500 small stock units on this property. Not many cattle, but the cattle also have a purpose to help improve the felt. So Jan and I arrived here in 1996. We were fortunate to be able to purchase this land. The house was very dilapidated and not looking good at all. And then we discovered that the homestead was built in 1960 and the farm's name was Finchley. But so we, we've improved the farm. I can without a doubt say that the farm that I'm on today is in a much better condition as what I received it. The felt types are better, the sheep are doing better. There's a better camp system, the water systems are better, water sources are better, so the sheep and animals always get fresh, clean water. They're healthier. I produce a good clip of wool, and uh, my meat goats do well. They, they, they survive well because they're adapted to the felt. But uh, the Karoo is very unique in this, in this way that it's, it's got a wonderful, nutritious dwarf shrubs that grow here. So our main challenges here is the droughts because it's rainfall. We've just been through a severe drought of five years. We're trying to build up stocks again. We've all got debt. And by the grace of God, we'll have good seasons that we can get back on top again. Just my philosophy is that if you look after your felt, your felt is, from a conservation point of view, your, your, your natural felt is the most important asset that you've got. We are sitting on a farm in the Karoo in South Africa, and I'm sitting here with Michael. Michael, it's now time for a song. So could you think of a song and share what song it is with us? One that maybe reminds you of your early years in the Karoo. I had an English granny, and my mom was Afrikaans, so I had an Afrikaans oma. And I'll never forget as a child that the Afrikaans song that was sang by my oma, and the English song that was sang by my granny. 
So I don't know if I'm going to sing these songs. If, yeah, if you want to. Well, the, the Afrikaans was, song was, Zimbamba, mama sakenki, Zimbamba, mama sakenki, Goeyom se nek kom, goeyom in die sloot, Trap op se kop, dan is sy dood. That's a song that my oma sent us to when we were trying to get us to sleep. And then my English granny is to sing, Go to sleep, my little piccanini. The brown fox will catch you if you do not sleep. So she sing that one to us. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't very picky and choosy. I enjoyed all kinds of music. We're sitting in the canoe. It is sunset. Michael, I would wa- love it if you'd look out the window and just just tell us what you see out there. If you look at this garden, I wouldn't mind showing you photos here of what this place looked like. There was no trees here. Absolutely no trees. There was no grass. There wasn't a porch. There was absolutely nothing. Except as far as blue gum trees in the back here, they were here. But all these trees in front here, Mandy, is my wife's creation. Wow. And she created all of this. But you can see, except the, bar, the far trees, the, the blue gum trees. But this is all her handiwork. She created all of this. And because we started a guest house, my wife always tells me that, no, but the garden doesn't bring any income. So I said, of course it does. When people stop here and they walk through this beautiful garden and they want to stay here. Mm. And I really love gardens here and really has a lot of uh, compliments for the garden and just appreciate in this dry area what she's created. And it's really a miracle. Michael, I'd like to now talk to you about hunting in South Africa. Yes. And for you, the connection between hunting and conservation. Let's make sure we speak to the people listening who don't understand hunting. Yes. Also, for the folks who are avid hunters, mm. you know, many of the people listening are listening in the United States, and it's very different, the hunting in America. Mm. There's public lands that people can go and hunt. Like, I hunt elk and whitetail on public lands. Mm. But in South Africa, public lands aren't super common. You've been hunting your entire life, mm. and we went hunting today. Hunting can be a controversial topic, but basically in South Africa, except for the big national parks, the rest of the land is privately owned. And we're fortunate that we can operate our land and use our land as we best think we can operate it. And 30, 40 years ago, the number of different species within South Africa was probably 60% lower than what it is now. So the population of the game has exploded because there's a value to the game species. But I can basically only speak about hunting in the Karoo. I have no experience of hunting in the northern Transvaal with the big game farms. I can't elaborate on that. I can only speak about the hunting in the Karoo. Now, the Karoo is a very dry area, which I've explained earlier. You cannot accommodate abundance of game. So... It's very important to manage your game. You cannot have too many because then your felt will suffer. And you don't want to damage your felt. So you must run your game according to your potential of your felt. Some areas in the Karoo can run more game. 
other areas can run less game. Make sure you tell them what felt is. The felt is watered by natural rain, and it rains and it wets the earth. And this seed has been lying there. It can lie up to seven years under the ground. With good rains, it comes up on its own. There are a huge variety of different types of plants in the Karoo. Because we have the succulent species, we have the Karoo species, we have even feinbos in the Karoo. So there's different ecotypes and grasslands. If you abuse your felt, otherwise you abuse it by running too many animals. So if you run too much game, then you're going to damage your felt. And because it's a low rainfall area, it just takes so much longer to recover. So you need to harvest your game to keep the numbers down. And it's a source of income as well for the owners and the workers because you get people to come and hunt your animals and you must hunt responsibly. I don't know elsewhere, but here in the Karoo, people are very responsible. They love the animals. They won't kill anything just for the joy of it. That's not going to happen. People just aren't like that. Because we live in a dry area, we've got to look after everything that we've got. Our game is also very special to us. We'll only harvest when we see that our numbers are too many. Our natural felt is so important. Without our natural felt, we've got nothing. Because we can't feed our game. We can't ride on trucks and trucks of feed. It's just not sustainable. Your own self, you've got to live conservatively. You cannot overspend in the Karoo. If you don't treat nature well, it will kick you off. So it's important for us. It's another source of income for our Karoo people, and we do it responsibly. All Karoo people that I've known hunt responsibly, and they love the game, and they only harvest when it's necessary. Michael, there's some differences to hunting in South Africa versus in the States. For example, in South Africa, we don't need to wear orange. I harvested a springbok with you today, and I was wearing all green, and I blend in with the, mm. the, the felt. Mm. In America, they had to wear bright orange mm. uh, by law on mm. a, a mm. certain percentage of their body. Mm. There's also you know, the, the access to public lands and, and also the access to, to firearms. It's different here in South Africa mm. in terms of you can't just go into a shop and buy a rifle. No. Can we elaborate on that? A lot of the Karoo people... They're very privileged because they grow up in an area where hunting takes place. So their fathers teach the sons how to hunt. Their fathers teach the sons what rifle safety is all about. Most of us in the crew in my age have been to the army and they've all handled the rifles. So from my generation point of view is that the hunters are well educated. But they do have courses in South Africa where they teach young upcoming people that are interested in hunters. They have field days, they have shooting ranges, and they teach them everything they need to know about the rifle, the safety. They, they teach them what rifles to use for what species and rifle placements. They get a lot of practice in South Africa. So if you want to acquire a rifle, you have to have been on one of these courses and you need to apply for a competency certificate whereby they will see that you've been on a course. The South African Hunting Association are very, very competent and very strict. When you apply for a rifle, you have to state clearly what you want to use this rifle for. 
if it's for self-defense purposes or for hunting purposes. And if you're not a dedicated hunter, then you can apply only for two rifles. But if you have a hunting dedication, then you're allowed three or four. So the laws changes for collectors as well. The laws do change a bit. But the laws are quite strict. It's not very easy to get a license. You know, if you do something illegal with a rifle in South Africa, your rifles will be confiscated. Tell us about hunting kudu. Today I saw a beautiful bull kudu and that species that I think you hunt in the wintertime. Can you tell us a little bit about that animal and those okay. hunts? Okay, so at Finchy Farm, when a hunter does a hunting inquiry, I send him my hunting document explaining to him the rules and regulations of hunting on Finchley Farm. That's just the way I do it. Because I've had some incidences before. If the hunter agrees to my rules and regulations, uh, he's welcome to come for a hunt. Now the kudu hunting, the farmers associations and the nature conservation, they will decide on the length of the hunting season and how many kudus are allowed to hunt per day to protect the species that not overhunting takes place. Most of the guys that I know look after their game. At Finchley Farm, I have three options of hunting kudu. We have the walk and stalk, whereby the hunter, he gets a guide, he knows the boundaries of the farm, and the guide will only guide you in the felt. He will try and help you find the kudus. So you walk and stalk, and the guide will help you find the kudus. He'll show you where the kudus are. He's not going to tell you which kudu you must shoot. The hunter must have his own experience to be able to shoot the kudu because Finchy Farm is not a hunting school. If you come to hunt at Finchy, I take it for granted that you are a hunter and you know what you're doing. You decide what buck you want to shoot. The guide will assist you if you shot the kudu. You'll go and kudu and he'll help you gut the kudu. If you don't want to do it yourself, he'll assist you. Then the guide will radio me, and then I'll come with the bucky, and we'll load up the kudu, and we'll work it immediately. We'll cut it open, and we'll clean it out, and we'll put it in the cold room. The second option is what we call, in Afrikaans, is called voorzit. That's when you put the, the hunters, when you have three or four hunters, you'll put them at strategic points in the felt, and then you've got beaters coming from behind, and they will be chasing on the kudus and hopefully they'll come out to where you are positioned on the farm. But I know the farm well, so I know exactly where to put the hunters out. And because the countryside is very hilly, I can put them at spots, at the safe spots where they cannot shoot each other or accident. I've never had an accident on the farm. That's why I do not take more than four hunters. There's just too many. The risk are too high to have too many hunters. What I also do offer is a bucky hunt. That is for people that are elderly, that cannot walk, and still want to, they've hunted their whole lives, but because of health reasons and because of some other limitation, I assist them with a bucky. So we do a bucky hunt as well. The walk and stalk hunt, the forset hunt, and the bucky hunt. 
Okay, now the Springbok hunting is fairly similar. You can walk and stalk with a guide, and you actually walk and stalk and try and outsmart your buck. So, the other one, you also can use beaters, but I don't like doing that with Springbok. Uh, I prefer them doing the walk and stalk with the Springbok. And then I also assist people also with the bucky hunt. The Blessbuck hunting is very similar to the Springbok hunting. Everything is done carefully. I like my hunters are all family groups. It's father's sons, father with their wives and their daughters and their children. I prefer the family hunts and father and son hunts. That suits me a lot better. I've, they really enjoy the farm life and I really enjoy the father's mentoring to the sons about hunting. That's the type of hunt that I really enjoy. Like today, Sam was with today with Mandy and Sam was mentoring his daughter and so on. So that's the type of hunt I like. Mm -hmm. I don't like these huge, big hunts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's too hectic. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the three main species in the Kudu, Springbok and Blessbok, those are the three methods that we, are, we hunt. There's no wastage. The game is transported safely and most of the hunting also takes place in the winter when it, in the cooler months. So there's less chance of meat damage. So basically, uh, I could just say that it's working for the crew and it's extra income for the employer and the employee. And it's nice having We're sitting to here in the Karoo, which is a region of South Africa. The word Karoo means dry place. I'm sitting here with Michael Kroon, and he has been farming sheep for over 40 years. He also plants trees, and he and his wife have almost completed their mission of planting 1,000 trees in the Karoo. Michael, I was hoping that you could share with us this passion for planting trees on behalf of your son. This is quite uh, a difficult subject for me to share, but uh, we tragically lost our son approximately five years ago. As a young man, he was a scout. He was a scout at school, and he was a very, very adventurous, outgoing man. He loved his plants at the back of our house. There's a tunnel where all his succulents are kept. So he loved nature, and he got a lot of his grandfather planted the seed in him to love felt and to love trees and nature and so on. As a scout, one of his projects was to do a community service. And he wanted to do his community service in Willamore and he decided about planting trees. So he and his friends came out to Willamore during the holiday, dressed in their scout clothing. They dug the holes in town and they planted about 20 trees. That's how it all started. And then he told his mom that his vision for town is to plant a thousand trees. And then about, what, about two years later, he lost his life. And Joanne and I decided this is what Sean wanted to do. And we thought we would fulfill his vision. And so we carried on, we carried on. And at his memorial service, the Elsenberg friends that knew us, they donated about 150 trees. And we were so, so overwhelmed by all the sponsorships of people that have donated trees towards Sean's project. Some of the homeowners, we'd sponsor them trees because it's a very dry area. 
So you're actually limited to what you can do. With the crisis of the municipalities, uh, Jan and I weren't prepared to lose our trees. So we got our tractor and a water cart and we started watering these trees on our own. And we've been doing that for the last five years. With our own initiative, we've been watering the trees in town. And the Elsenburg trees that I got from my friends from Elsenburg, they're all planted around the sports field of the colored community. Our vision was to not to do a section of the town, is to divide it among, that was Sean's vision throughout the town, whether you're black or white or colored, all over the town. And in the beginning, we used to get flack because people would say, oh, we're just doing it for some certain party. Because everything in, in this township, so it's just, it's just political. You always think you're trying to gain votes if you do something. Unfortunately, that's the way it was done. But they've slowly but surely realized it's not about that. A lot of people have told us that they're just going to break the trees, they're going to cut them down. And, but that didn't stop us. We went through with the project and we carried on. And even today, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, when Joanna started planting the trees, we had a lot of negative people telling us we're wasting our time and what we're doing it for. And But in any case, when Jan was planting a tree, the one guy came to Jan and also said, you know, wasting your time. And about five years later, Jan saw him parked under the tree in the shade. I said to him, what do you say now? You parked under the shade now? So he didn't know what to say. If I go downtown now and I see all the people in the shade of the trees, it brings so much joy to my heart that these trees are now doing such a wonderful task. So if you can plant a tree today, do it. Trees are so special. You know, they're so good for the environment. And so sad to hear what's going in certain parts of the world where jungles are being chopped down and so on. In a small way, whether you plant two or three trees in 10 years, make a difference. Start planting a tree. That's the voice of Michael Kroon. He has been living in the Karoo, South Africa, his entire life. He's been farming sheep for over 40 years, and he also hunts and plants trees. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the Trail Less Traveled. And thank you for today's hunt. No, it's only a pleasure, man. You know, it was lovely having you and Samia, your dad. And I really appreciate uh, you chose me as one of your... I don't think this has ever happened. I think this is the first interview I've ever had. But anyway, thank you very much. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Michael, it's time to play one last song. What song would you like to end your show with? I think we a song called Macarena. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that, that song, when it came out, okay, I've learned it. I've it enough now. But yeah. when I heard that song, in the, it just gave me a vibe. Yeah. I don't know if I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. Macarena, Macarena, Macarena. Yeah. Hey, Macarena. Macarena. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The Trail Less Traveled is the community source for adventure, information, and inspiration. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. The show is dedicated to collecting stories and sounds 
from some of the most remote locations around the world, and tonight was no exception. This evening's episode was recorded in the Karua, which is a dry desert plateau located in the southeastern region of South Africa. I want to thank my friend Michael Kroon and his wife Joanne for letting me hunt Springbok on their property. I will forever dream of the beautiful valley filled with kudu, blesbok, springbok, ancient tortoises, and bat-eared foxes. It was a very, very special day, making my first harvest in South Africa with my father present, followed by the blood ceremony, a tradition of the Bushmen, after you harvest your first animal in that region of Africa. Michael Kroon has been farming in the Karua his entire life. I invite you to follow the show as it's recorded on location around the world by visiting traillesstravel.net. You can learn more about our global outreach programs and view the full show archive. Thank you so much for your support of this new genre of adventure radio. If you feel like helping with our outreach programs, you can donate a few dollars every month via Patreon. There's more information on how you can get involved with that support system by visiting traillesstravel.net. I'd like to thank all of the sponsors of the show, the staff at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, and my friends and family around the world. Tune in every week for an adventure, and I'm trying to mix it up so one week we go overseas and then we come back to Missoula. Then we go back overseas and then we come back to Missoula. So if you want me to interview someone in Missoula please get in touch. Again, you can contact me at traillesstraveled.net. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. I will end this show with an adventure tip, and that is to please do your research and engage in ways that you can support the community and respect the wildlife and cultural traditions when you're hunting outside of the United States. It comes down to the same thing, and that is, please do your research and respect all sentient beings. Until next week's adventure, please get outside, do something for Mother Earth, and remember, the thing about the Nar is, it doesn't shred itself. I'm going to end this evening's program with some beautiful music produced by the Bushmen. In some regions, they are known as the Khoi, the Khoi San, or the San people. Most of the elders that I have spoken to prefer to be called Bushmen. I hope these sounds help transport you to this incredibly beautiful and isolated part of Africa. <laughs>